Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. Travis. Before the Small Giants Leadership Academy, Travis struggled with emotional intelligence. For one, I wasn't aware of my own uh, feelings surrounding any given situation, but I didn't care about anyone else's either. We know a very different Travis today. What was so right about Small Giants was it's authentic. Just plain, true, authentic. Hey, we're talking about our purpose. We're going to really talk about why we exist and how we're going to empower that for the longevity of the organization. It was just very clear that there was more to this experience and more to why we exist as human beings. I've been able to reach out to people in my cohort um, that, and talk about things that I'm experiencing. And how else would I have been able to do that, to have a call with somebody in Oklahoma or Michigan, and that community piece really made all the difference. It's very clear that the community is so strong and there's so many resources there that you don't get anywhere else. We're now recruiting for the next class of the Small Giants Leadership Academy. Learn more at smallgiants.org. My guest today is Lisa Wise, the founder and CEO of Flock DC, a family of service companies with an innovative approach to real estate management and preservation. Her entire career has been anchored in empowering individuals as consumers, building stronger communities, and creating forward-thinking businesses. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. Well, it's great to have you on. You have a, a wonderful story. You have several businesses all around uh, real estate in some way or another. I think the first one you started was called Nest. But tell me a little bit about the businesses, your structure, how many employees you have, things like that. Happy to. It's a good question. Flock is a family of real estate management companies. We're located in Washington, D.C., and we're really laser focused on managing real estate in an urban setting in a high density environment, which, as we all know right now, is kind of a tricky space to be in, but one that we've really enjoyed and can cultivated an expertise in. We started the company, I started the company with a co founder about 12 years ago, and our objective was to really offer a high quality, client focused, service forward management experience for people that were seeking. Uh, apartments and houses in the D.C. area. And the idea was really straightforward. We wanted to create an exceptional living experience and exceptional properties. Uh, we feel like when people are happy where they live, they make better neighbors, better neighbors equal better neighborhoods, and better neighborhoods are really the foundation for uh, thriving cities. And so from that perspective, uh, you know, our mission-based and purpose-driven business model in an industry that hasn't really enjoyed uh, a very good reputation in that category uh, became something that the city was easily attracted to. There seemed to be a strong appetite for our approach to the work, and we grew pretty organically, property by property. Today, 12 years later, we manage about 1,000 properties in Washington, D.C. as Nest, and in 2013, right around the time when the company became viable, I realized that the reason for that was because I had a really great team of people that had bought into the model and what we were doing and how we were doing it. 
And I wanted to create an ownership path for them, uh, but didn't want to split Nest up uh, for a number of different reasons. So what we did was we took a book of business that we had been cultivating on the Nest side and moved it into another LLC and structure that invited our team members to become employee owners. So today we have about 15 employee owners of the company that's now called Roost DC. And Roost manages associations, homeowner associations, which here would be a condo association. We introduced a, another service component, which was Starling DC. Starling services our, our buildings through maintenance, services our residential units by doing turnover work and making sure they're resident ready. We called that Starling DC. And then we realized we were really confusing everybody with our birds. Uh, so what we did was we decided to launch kind of a metaphorical holding company called Flock DC. Flock is the brand that unites all the baby birds. We we joke that we had the, the kids before the parents, but Flock does a nice job of tying everything together and also giving us more opportunities to introduce new concepts as we grow and grow into this, this uh, formula. Right now, we have about 50 plus members of the team, and uh, we are uh, certainly in growth mode, though you know, a lot of our work is needing to change and flex during this pandemic, but uh, we'll we'll land somewhere between six and seven million dollars across all the different business units in in uh, aggregated business, and um, we feel like we've certainly stumbled into something that works really well, and uh, we love our work every single day, even on, even the hardest day is a rewarding one for us. Well, that's uh, wonderful to love your work. That's a key. Uh, you've uh, honestly built some really wonderful companies as part of this family of businesses under Flock. Uh, a, a question about just the original one, the property management business, is that reputation that you talked about um, well-deserved or not? And two, how how have you bucked that trend? So from a practical standpoint, you talk about being client-centric, mission-driven, purpose-focused. How do you bring that to the day-to-day work that you guys do as property managers? Another great question. It really starts with taking care of the team that's taking care of the properties. So, you know, that, that in some ways is the secret sauce. Culture is really everything. We lean into that culture every day. And and I've always measured profitability, not in the amount of money I might make at the end of the year or, or uh, the value of the company or, you know, cash flow. I really think about our profitability is truly measured in the number of exceptional jobs we create. And when we're creating exceptional jobs and exceptional work experiences for those team members, that's going to translate to an exceptional service on behalf of the clients we work with who own these properties and then the residents that are part of those communities. And, and the, the formula is sort of magic. It works. If everybody's invested in an exceptional experience, then our ability to impact communities positively is accelerated. And, and that's been what we've been most interested in. I think in terms of how we operate in comparison to our, our, our peers in the field, we are very forward thinking when it comes to understanding our impact on community. Uh, and housing in particular, and, and this is such a relevant and critical conversation right now, housing needs to be inclusive, it needs to be accessible, it needs to be well-maintained, people need to be safe in their homes. We get a chance to make that contribution. Uh, we get a chance to think about how taking care of, of homes and the people in them is one of the most valuable and intimate things you can offer as a company. Uh, and oddly enough, and I don't know why this has been the case, the industry has never really anchored itself in values or the principle of 
building stronger communities. And I've always been most interested in how you do things exactly the opposite. So we start there instead of sometimes uh, maybe getting there. So we're leading with uh, an authentic interest in making a difference and having a big footprint in our community and being inclusive and creating great jobs and having strong impact on families and their, in their spaces. Um, and you can't measure the, the profit model when you're leading that way. Um, but I've always believed that when you do good business, you'll get more good business. And that's been a, a safe bet for us. Yeah. Uh, you guys do some really neat work in the community, um, grant programs, et cetera. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah. And, and part of, part of that focus of our work is, is tied to the fact that I, I, I came into this workspace having spent 15 years working in the nonprofit world. So I, I always joke, you can take the girl out of the nonprofit, but you can't take the nonprofit out of the girl. So we've always been really forward thinking about making sure that we create um, adjacent programming within the companies that um, kind of helps us live our values, um, but might not necessarily be uh, directly related to, to management or residential management or living. And so we, we've put together some philanthropy programs, uh, and and our, our, the one that I think has the most interesting branding is called Bird Seed, and there's just no end to the number of bird metaphors you can come, right. bird, that you can come up with. It's it's funny, um, but uh, Bird Seed is a microgrant program uh, that was born out of our philanthropy work. Generally, um, Bird Seed gives anywhere between $2,500 and $5,000 a quarter or every three or four months to a doer, a maker, or a disruptor in the district. Uh, and the idea is that they have a project that can get wrapped within three months, that uh, this cash capital will help them achieve that project, that it is DC-specific, and um, the application can only be one page long, and that includes the budget. And it's been a really rewarding program. Uh, you don't have to be a nonprofit. Uh, we're really open to the idea that, you know, lots of ideas could use some seed funding. And um, yet there's not a necessity to create a 501c3 in order to pursue those dreams. So we've done everything from uh, helping people come up with native seed uh, hot sauce recipes from rooftop gardening in different communities throughout the city and, and helping them with their hot sauce bottling procurement, which was awesome. Uh, we funded uh, an African-American girls coding class and we were able to not only offer cash assistance, but then we made our offices available so they could host the trainings, uh, which was great. Uh, one of our last grant programs, we gave funding to a, a woman who hosts birthday parties for kids who are homeless. Uh, we've bought we helped fund a tractor for a, vet, a veteran farmer. <laughs> we put a mural up. Uh, and one of my favorites was a bi bicycle repair station uh, that we sponsored in a neighborhood that didn't have any access to um, you know, public bike repair tools. So we, we were able to host that and murals and all kinds of other stuff. So I think we've been able to put together a pretty great suite of things that we're supporting and it just feels great to make sure that, you know, you can make a difference. And it's it's also a great way for my team to feel really engaged in in what the city's up to um, and know that they can make a difference. And not just by creating visibility for organizations, but those cash dollars really do make a difference. 
and the, the stories, the individual stories uh, that you have been able to create as a result of this is, are just tremendous. Those are some of the best uh, outcomes of just how you can ultimately help individuals. And like you said, in a parallel course to the company, always doing those kinds of things to make a difference in the, in the community. You know, we're recording this in uh, the middle of June of 2020, and we're still smack in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, which has thrown everybody personally and professionally uh, uh, through the loop. And uh, you guys are no different. Um, we featured you in our Stepping Up series for your leadership uh, and this kind of whole feeling of empathy that you've had um, in leading your team through this. How have you approached reacting and surviving um, during the pandemic? I think empathy is really the word that I always come back to. Uh, this is a really challenging and painful time for everybody on my team and every resident that we interact and work with. People are confused and they're scared and they're um, you know, un uncertain about what comes next. And while I, I don't care for that word because I think it's been overused, I also think it's being overused for a reason. It's, it's basically the shared experience right now. What we need to do as an organization, as a company, is to really think through how we can be most supportive of our team members, our residents, and our community. And um, take a big step back in terms of how we define and measure that profitability once again. So for me, uh, we decided as a company that we would do everything we could to maintain jobs while simultaneously doing what we could uh, on behalf of public health. And that meant making some really hard decisions really early on in the pandemic. It meant some challenging layoffs, but also with some support to those team members that were laid off so that they didn't see a major financial hit. It meant I took a 75% pay cut. It meant that my leadership team also took significant pay cuts to make sure that we created as much business continuity uh, as possible for our team members. But it also meant being constantly communicative with those team members about where we were and what our runway looked like financially and otherwise. It meant being in constant conversation with our residents around how we were being present for them during this time, not just as a management company, but as a company that cared about their well-being. Um, it's constantly checking in. It's moving our maintenance activities to a virtual model, not just because we're curious about you know, whether or not their unit is in good shape, but it's about saying, are you okay as a resident? All of those things and that culture of empathy that I think we've worked really hard to cultivate over the last decade, I think has um, paid off, for lack of a, a better word. And it's paid off in the sense that you know, we're now able to settle in to this, this uh, reality for however long it unfolds. Uh, and we've discovered, um, happily so, that you know, we are an essential business. We're managing people's homes. Right now, home has more meaning to people than it ever has before. We have value to offer each other and to this community. And uh, we'll continue to, to double down on the support that we can offer DC during this time and uh, continue to create as many great jobs as we can as, as all of this unfolds. And while you know, we won't go without losses financially, there will be different kinds of gains for us as we move through this period of time. Yeah, uh, I think it's a great approach that you've had. And, and something you said about um, revolving around empathy is just the conversations that you've had, whether it's with employees or residents of the properties that you manage. Uh, I have found that during this time, 
just being vulnerable, uh, ha- listening, uh, talking, sharing that uncertainty with people is what makes them feel better and relaxes them. We can't avoid the financial hardships, uh, but giving people reassurance and saying kind of that we're we're doing this together and uh, that we're all suffering at the same time and, and being an available ear for them is uh, really one of the most important things. And you guys have done such a great job with that. Um, Lisa, you've got just great stories to tell of what you have done in building the company and and uh, what you're doing now uh, during challenging times. I want to find out where all this came from and take you back, uh, you know, early on. Maybe tell me a little bit about your childhood, your folks. Uh, I know you moved uh, around a lot when you were younger, but uh, what what do you think contributed to making you the leader you are today? Yeah, the origin stories are always interesting, right? Um, sometimes uh, some more than others. But, you know, I grew up in, in a small town in Idaho for the most part, and we did move a lot for different, you know, reasons. And, you know, I grew up in uh, with a lot of love, but but not with a lot of resources. And, and there was just kind of a baseline um, vulnerability that my family lived with uh, as we were growing up. And I think for me... I was really interested in doing whatever I could to counter that insecurity and housing and financial well-being were sort of the two key strategies that I had. So I knew that I need early that I needed to earn cash. Uh, I needed to be around a lot of animals uh, and I needed to be in a house that was safe. So those are sort of the three things that I focused on growing up. Luckily, everybody in my family liked animals, so I was always a washing things to cuddle with. Um, but uh, but, you know, we lived in a one bedroom house and, you know, my parents slept in the dining room and kind of had this, um, you know, uh, jacked up screen that they used to create their own privacy. My brother slept in a basement that didn't have uh, appropriate egress, which now I'm way more familiar with than I ever thought I would be. And I'm looking back on that thinking, oh, my God, he didn't have any way to leave if there was a fire. <laughs> um, we and then, you know. I slept in the the only bedroom of that house and and I would I would quite literally and honestly lie in bed and think about how I would redo that house <laughs> to be a more appropriate one for our little family of four. Um, it, it was on Second Street in Haley, Idaho. There were about 1,800 people that lived there. And my mom, when we moved to this house, my you know my brother uh, laid claim to the tree house that was in the backyard, and I um, I of course was bummed about that. And my mom said, "Listen, you can have half the." the shed. There was a shed back there. And I was delighted with the shed. We had been, we were always in a constant state of working on this house and, and there were construction materials all over the place. So I took my half of the shed and I was probably like nine, 10, 11. And I, you know, propped up drywall against the wall and I put carpet remnants down and like some table of some sort, I painted the walls yellow. And then I, that was my first home office. <laughs> um, and I started the Sherlock Holmes detective agency and I, I, took out an ad at the local paper. One of the big perks of growing up in a town of 1800 people is everyone knows you. And, um, and the, the local sort of publisher of the paper that comes out every two weeks is pretty happy to pull favors for you. <laughs> so she put an ad in the paper and I kind of was waiting for business to just get crushed by business. <laughs> of course I didn't have any, there were no crimes to solve there in Haley, Idaho. Um, but it, it did sort of create a metaphor for the fact that like I was probably the only 10 year old that dreamed of what my home office would look like. And I was just really interested in, in 
pursuing whatever kind of side hustle I could to create some security for myself. And so, you know, while my Sherlock Holmes detective agency didn't uh, really um, thrive, all my vacuum cleaning businesses, my rock selling businesses, my, you know, all my pet sitting and dusting and all of it, I think there's, it's probably likely I still have some of that cash on uh, from all those little side hustles. And, And so it didn't surprise me long term when I thought about a, not only being a business owner, because that had always really attracted me, but B, um, making a difference in people's lives by extending that sense of security I was missing to their lives. So it was less about what's in it for me, and it was more about what kind of contribution I can make for others. And housing and being in a housing environment and space was a really natural trajectory for me. Uh, with a strong detour and the nonprofit work and, and that I did, I do think housing has has been a really sweet fit for me. And, um, you know, my own sense of security now, um, and, and, you know, owning a home and having a business and having a home with enough space and um, security and safety and all those things just make a really big difference in our lives. And to, to know that I get to make a, a contribution to that for others is, is really, is really valuable for me. Yeah. Uh, any, um, anything from school or, uh, other influences, early, other early jobs that you felt like might've contributed to this approach you have today as a leader? Well, I always joke that it's a miracle I can read cause I got a really crappy education growing up. <laughs> Um, I did, you know, I went to the University of Arizona and, and that was a great, uh, environment for me for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Tucson is a great little liberal place. And, uh, when I was in grad school, um, my, I, I had a close family member that had been caring for, um, who was, uh, dying of AIDS. And that was a really powerful, um, two years that we spent together and he and I would often talk about housing. And he kept saying, you know, I know you love this house that I'm living in. I want you to move into it when I die. And it was, and, and it was really funny because I kept thinking, but you rent and I just don't believe in renting. Like some part of you, that wasn't going to be a good idea. Um, and he lived in this like highly coveted, um, Adobe village and I loved the house, but I didn't love the idea of renting. And when he passed away, he left me his car. It was a Honda Civic. It was, it was, um, it was a great little car. It was much superior to the one that I had. Um, but I was living in an Adobe duplex at the time. Um, and I, I, you know, there was someone that lived in the unit next door and it was me. And, and I had been renting that space from a, a gentleman who was a professor at the University of Arizona who had moved to Australia where he had had a different opportunity um, to teach. And I, I emailed him and said, hey, you know, would you ever be interested in selling this house? And he replied pretty enthusiastically that it was probably time for him to move on, that they didn't find themselves moving back to the United States. And so um, I sold the car that Richard gave me for $8,300. And I I came up with a deal over email with the the guy that I, I was renting from. And I went to the library and I got a book on how to, you know, buy a house without an agent. And he and I just negotiated over email I paid $83,000 for the house. I had $8,300 for my down payment. I sort of, you know, scraped together some other cash so I could uh, cover the closing costs. I got a stellar rate of eight and a half percent and I automatically became a landlord. 
um, and fell in love with that idea. So I had a tenant that lived on the other side and I, you know, I didn't have any money to do, to pay people for renovation. So I had to learn to do that work myself. And I really loved working with my hands. Um, I find there's nothing more satisfying than doing a thing and turning around and saying, Oh, I did that thing. <laughs> um, it's not often we get that option, uh, particularly if you're doing work that's, um, you know, computer based or office based, you don't always get those rewards. And so, um, I learned how to fix up that 1893 Adobe duplex and it was just, um, a stellar first experience for me as a homeowner and in part because my tenant was paying all but $75 of the mortgage and I could use whatever was left over, um, from what I had budgeted for rent to, to, you know, make those repairs and patch the roof. And the other <laughs> great part of, of owning a house in Tucson is like, it never rains <laughs> so, or does. So like what I've learned over time in this business, especially in Washington, DC is like weather is a problem um, because it's just, you know, it creates all these vulnerabilities for houses. It's, it's a thorn and in Tucson, it kind of never rained. So if the roof was leaking, like it really didn't need to be that big of a deal. You, you still had a couple months to work on it. It wasn't going to be these relentless rains. Um, and so you know, and owning an Adobe duplex, Adobe's great. It's just mud and water. You know, it's pretty easy to repair. It was kind of a good my first house house. There was nothing about the house that was square. It was built right on the dirt. It was, you know, it's still a really magical place. And I still own that house. Um, and I'll, it's, it's always my homeless strategy. So if everything just turns to crap, I can just live there. <laughs> um, and I think I could do so very happily now. All the trees that I planted all those years ago are quite large. But that is that is kind of um, the the school of life that I I picked up on in, in terms of using that moment with my cousin who was so generous with me, and that was such a rewarding experience all the way around. But um, that eighty three hundred dollars, I know he would be really pissed that I didn't live in his house, but I felt like uh, I made the right decision. Yeah, God, that's where this all came from. Um, can you uh, think of an unexpected learning from an unexpected source along the way? Um, oh, gosh, well, that's a hard question. You know, I think that learning from an unexpected source would be from my son, uh, who is eight and uh, is growing up in sort of precisely the opposite living experience to the one that I had. Um, his life is just full of joy and safety and security. And, um, yet, uh, to see his eyes opening up to the world of empathy and possibility and community contribution and the idea that he does not need to live a life that's about him, but instead about others, I think to see that I've been able to help influence some some value systems for him that I think will help people going forward has been unexpected. I think because I never really expected to become a parent. Um, I think every moment I get with him to learn more about what's possible is, um, is just really inspiring for me. Yeah. Um, how have you tried to teach him that, you know, there's, a world beyond the comforts that he's been able to experience? Has it just been watching you uh, in the world, the business world that you live in? Yeah, I mean, I think, to be honest, I mean, I, I don't think we can talk about uh, a 
the pandemic and the state of the world with regard to, you know, public health and, and, and the threats that exist without talking about race and equity and um, the civil rights work that's that's unfolding right in front of us right now, that we have constant conversations in our home about what it means to have privilege um, and what it means to not have privilege. So it's one thing to say we're lucky. It's another to ask questions about and tell stories about and think through and understand what it means to not be lucky. And what does that look like? And for our son, you know, he is a, he's this adorable and sweet and kind boy, but he's also, you know, a wash in privilege. And I, I, I don't want him to lose sight of the fact that he just won the lottery um, and that there's no entitlement to that. Uh, and that it is his responsibility to not say I deserved this, but to say I was one of the lucky ones and how do I pay this forward? So it is just a constant state of conversation for us and um, a joyful one. I don't think he's ever taking it by surprise. It's just the cadence of his learning. And we've been really lucky to have him be not only enthusiastic about the conversation, but now asking a lot of really great questions questions that are showing us that he's not only listening, but caring about this conversation for himself and his future. Yeah, we have two kids, uh, 18 and 14, and same thing, have you know lived a, um, a very blessed life. And, uh, and yet, I think we have really worked since the beginning, and I give my wife the greatest credit for this, for making sure that they were aware of the world that they lived in and what was really going on outside. And I just find young people to be so much more even accepting of the differences in people uh, than later, you know, earlier generations and uh, and giving them that heart uh, to want to help others from the very beginning. And I think that that's just been built into the way we've tried to raise them. Uh, I, I don't think any of us would wish this time on them that we're going through, but the life lessons that are coming out of this for ourselves and our children are just really amazing. And so, uh, like you said, leaning into that is really important and congrats on what you've done um, with your with your son. Um, as, as you think about uh, the business, Lisa, and, and what you've done with all of the entities within uh, Flock, uh, do you, are you, are there more uh, bird names coming? Are you are you going to expand to other businesses? Are are you going to focus in some way or another? You know, kind of how do you see uh, the business evolving? And maybe the whole pandemic ha has uh, allowed you to some in some ways even reinvent what your model is going forward. But how how are you going to approach things now? Uh yeah, another really good question. It's interesting. I've had so many, you know, technology has been kind of our interim solution, right? Uh, our office mate is Zoom and, um, you know, uh, making those virtual connections and, and leveraging technology as much as possible right now has been the bridge to get through this time. And um, I've, like all of us, uh, re relied on it heavily. But at the same time, you know, I keep getting these phone calls from startup companies and, and, and the, the tech world wanting me to test run or um, explore or play a role in how they're creating new technologies that streamline the property management or residential management experience uh, and, and kind of aggregate different tools from 
um, different services like, you know, food delivery and, and pet sitting and all the different things. And then if we can just, if we can just create, you know, API tools and technologies that help people, you know, streamline all this work. And it's so funny because I keep thinking, actually, what we need is more human connection and, and we need technology to help, uh, help us streamline and create greater efficiencies in the back of the house work that we're doing. Um, but we need people to be more present uh, for all conversations with our client base and our communities and residents. And so we're really wanting to focus on offering that. Um, and, and so what we're looking at right now is how do you scale and replicate a model that's so heavenly reliant on personal connection? And part of it is a technology uh, framework and infrastructure that allows you to free up time for those meaningful interactions. So the next, the, our, our, our current uh, launch product is called Bird Watch. It, the next bird. Um, the next bird. It's got a, a it's an owl. Um, it's adorable. And this is a property management um, program that we're offering to people who live in and own their own homes. Uh, but uh, and enjoy all of the the benefits of and privileges of home ownership but would really just like someone to call when there's a problem. And we are the people that pick up the phone. And by pick up the phone, I really mean pick up the phone. So we're, we're focused on being a, a high touch, highly visible, highly present uh, team of people that help people manage things in their homes that a, they don't have time for, they don't have bandwidth for, they don't have an interest in handling. And so we help concierge or triage those things. Um, so let's say, for example, you have a, a you know a toilet that's running. You got to get out of the house, or you're on your way somewhere, uh, and you can just put a maintenance ticket in, or give us a, a call, and we'll make sure that that gets calendared for the next 24 to 48 hours. Um, part of the onboarding process with clients is that you know we catalog and understand all the working elements of their property, so we can not only put them on reoccurring maintenance schedules, but also uh, handle those one-off activities as they emerge. Um, this kind of, of program uh, is completely compatible with the infrastructure we developed to manage uh, full-service management of homes that are occupied by tenants. Um, so we're able to leverage existing systems and technologies to offer um, an, an adjacent value-add product to people that wouldn't normally be in our portfolio. Um, and the advantage there is that, you know, especially in a city like Washington, D.C., which tends to have a lot of movement in terms of people coming and going, um, depending on the community, um, those are people that can enter our portfolio as a client um, at different stages of life. So when we talk about being a lifestyle company, we're actually thinking almost of life cycles. So, you know, you might get acquainted with us when you're a resident um, in one of the properties that we manage when you're a young professional in your 20s. Uh, then let's say, um, you know, you move on and you buy a condo and we don't see you for a little bit. But then you decide later, hey, it's time for me to um, you know, rent this property out to a tenant. And, and then you become a client of ours. Perhaps the building we manage is managed by Roost DC. Uh, then maybe you have a, a, a kid or two and you realize, I just don't have any time or bandwidth to manage uh, all these household things that kind of keep coming up. I'm going to become a birdwatch client. Um, so we really want to stay with people throughout their lives um, by offering a strong, high-touch service that helps them focus on what's most important for them, um, knowing that we can support what they're doing uh, on the on the tactical housing side. Yeah, it's a great marketing and branding challenge too to 
have the customer understand that that's really what you're trying to build or what you are building or is available to them as kind of a lifestyle uh, or lifelong partner in helping managing their lives and their homes wherever they are. Uh, I uh, I love Birdwatch. That that would be like the first call I'd make because I'm so used to being the first to jump and say, yeah, let's just call somebody. Although in this last three months, I found myself uh, seeing the benefit, as you talked about earlier, of doing stuff with your own hands because there wasn't anybody to call or we weren't allowed to call anybody. And so I, I found the joy of learning how to um, clean out a drain or change a toilet seat or build something that needed to be built. It's like, wow, that feels really good. Um, so um, it, there's both sides of this, depending on where you are and what your sure. capabilities are. Uh, so we're probably capable of doing more than we think, but it's always nice to be able to uh, make that call and have that, uh, like you said, that high touch experience. And so how you've been able to do this along the whole continuum is really, really wonderful. Um, if you think about uh, your own leadership journey, Lisa, and uh, kind of going forward, you know, you've got your your hands in so many different things all at the same time. Is there uh, an area of leadership that you find that you still want to improve on? Um, gosh, you ask the hard questions. <laughs> I think that there should always be work that leaders are engaged in as they they grow their ability to be impactful. Um, number one is listening. And that is really hard right now uh, with the technology that we're trying to use to make those connections. Um, but, you know, we have two ears for a reason. And it's so important for us to think through what kind of experiences, ideas, needs that our team members have, that our co-leaders have, that our residents and community members have. Um you know, we don't have all the answers. In fact, if we did, life would be boring, right? However, that tends to be a signature leadership style, which is, oh, we've got all the answers. It's hard to lead with humility and uh, the, 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 the genuine acknowledgement that, like, we don't have all the answers to how things are going to unfold. We will make mistakes. We will get things wrong. We will choose to no longer invest in something that we were so convinced was going to work. And I think that that humility and listening are the two things that need constant attention from me as a leader and, and being embracing of just different input. Um, and, um, and being open to the fact that it's okay for me to say, I didn't do something well, or I didn't get it right. Um, but I would rather make the effort and I think right now as a leader, I will offer in my various leadership roles, I not only run this company and this family of companies, but I'm also the board chair for a large scale federally qualified health center. I am in a, a state of a constant state of conversation around race and anti-racism and justice issues and what it means to be a thriving, sustainable company. And I can tell you every time I open my mouth, I feel like I'm going to say something wrong. Um, but if I don't keep listening, the likelihood of saying something wrong is going to be greater. But I would rather keep trying and take steps forward than not taking steps forward at all. Yeah, that's part of that uh, that early risk that you were willing to take um, that came from when you were you were growing up. Um, 
if you were to talk to somebody younger now, just kind of starting out in their career, what kind of advice would you give them? Don't worry about name brand schools. <laughs> Um, it's funny. I had a conversation with someone yesterday that wanted to connect me with people and he kept telling me what their college degrees or where they were from. They're like, this one went to Yale and that one went to Princeton. I was like, Oh God, I would never have qualified for any of those schools. And to be honest, I don't know that they, uh, would have been the right fit for me. I went to an affordable, accessible state university and an environment that really clicked and worked for me. And I was able to get through school without being completely overwhelmed by student debt. And that gave me a chance as a, as a person, as an entrepreneur to pursue a passion. And I see so many of my team members really struggling with student loan debt, that that becomes what defines their career instead of the other way around. Um, and so there is a lot of, I think, value in being as economical as possible as you can around, you know, pursuing the education that works best for you. And I think the idea of a name brand education uh, can be appealing, but I don't necessarily think it nets the outcome everybody thinks it will. And that would be one strong piece of advice right now. Yeah, I think that's so true. Um, I, as an employer and, you know, over the years of my own businesses, that meant nothing to me where someone went to school, uh, what college they came from, or frankly, whether they went to college or not. And uh, uh, and so I've said the uh, same thing to our kids and um, that uh, we don't care where we went to school. I mean, I went to UCLA and my parents went to UCLA. So we go to a UCLA family camp every year for the last 13 years. And so the natural thing was, Jordan, you're going to go to UCLA. But uh, early on, I said, it, it really makes no difference. Go where you want to go. Go where uh, you find something that you're interested in and you're passionate about. We just hope you go to college. Uh, but, you know, bottom line is it doesn't matter. You, you follow your passion or, or you try to maybe learn what your passion is, which is probably going to take years beyond being even being in college. So I think that's just really important advice and, and, and not, not so much for even the young people, but for the parents of the young people who could stop putting so much pressure on them uh, for, because it's, it's really our fault, not theirs, um, yeah. that, they're, that they're in that situation. Um, let me tell you kind of what I took away from this conversation, Lisa, uh, that was so impactful. I love how you talked about really the essence of what culture is like in business, that if we take care of the team, then uh, our team is going to take care of the customer or we're going to take care of the properties. I mean, that's just the basis of what I used to call the circle of growth, that if we foster employee loyalty, that's going to drive customer loyalty, which is then going to drive profitability into our business. And that cycle can just continue. Um, that success to you is really about how many exceptional jobs you create versus what kind of profit you're delivering. Um, the, this idea, and I know you say you're not a risk taker, but kind of always being interested in doing things the opposite of normal. Um, and that has really driven you and I still think drives you to this day. Uh, I love the nonprofit providing the micro grants in the community through uh, Birdseed. Uh, just the sacrifice that you've made during the pandemic, your own personal uh, pay cut, uh, just showing that uh, that we all have to participate in this. Um, everybody is suffering, but through having a, an ear and listening and having empathy, you guys are all getting through this and are going to be 
much smarter for it. And I think a lot of what um, you are like today came from as you grew up saying, like you said, with a lot of love, not a lot of resources. So you were kind of a hustler early on Just said, I got to have enough cash. I got to find what it means to have security in a home. I got to have animals around me. And uh, whether it's your side hustles, the Sherlock Holmes detective agency, um, and uh, but you built this uh, need for a sense of security and then the ability to transfer that to others. So uh, the the fact that your business today is really an outgrowth of the the time you you sold the the Honda and bought that house um, via email. You just kind of went for it and and did it on your own and and uh, became a landlord for the first time. Um, was really something, and but you saw an opportunity, and then you just built and built and continue to build upon it. Um, just uh, the lessons you're learning from your son and with your son, and how um, he's helping shape the world of the future is just beautiful to see, uh, and uh, and how you're even pivoting today to say, can yes, can we use technology to make our own business more efficient, but can we also use our technology to make our business more personal and to listen better? Uh, so I think that what people really need to take from this is, again, the humility that you show by realizing that uh, we don't have all the answers, that um, it's really hard to lead with humility, but it's just it's so critically important right now. And I love how you ended with the the lesson for young people to say that it, it doesn't matter where you went to school. Don't worry about the brand name schools. Yes, you want to learn, get an education. I think all of our listeners can learn from you to say that this is a constant journey of self-realization and evaluation and continuing to learn. But what you've done is you've been able to find multiple ways to contribute not only to your employees um, and your customers, but especially in this day and age with what we're going through to make people comfortable um, in their own homes, living in their own homes. And um, that's a great contribution to society and the world. So uh, Lisa, I want to thank you so much for being with, uh, with me on the podcast today. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation and, and uh, answering all those really thoughtful questions. Thank you. And thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please support the show by subscribing to your future episodes. Until next time.